Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Heredity Podcast. This month's show is about bacteria hitching a ride on Asian sandstorms. I'm Jeff Marsh. A massive sandstorm has swept through northeastern China, causing over 100 fires and extensive damage. The strong winds and dust caused more than 100 fires to break out in Hami City, while southern parts of the region were hit by a cold blast. That was a news report from earlier this year detailing a massive sandstorm which swept through northwest China, causing fires and damage to everything in its way. Global warming is whipping these up and we're seeing larger and larger sandstorms which are moving further and further. That's Michael Dubau from the Institute of Genetics and Microbiology of the Université Paris-Sud in France. His interest in these sandstorms, which are a common phenomenon in the spring, is the bacterial freeloaders hitching a ride over huge distances. More and more, it's looking like the bacteria can travel tens of thousands of kilometres around the planet, at least on these sandstorms. My interest in bacteria comes from the molecular side, doing molecular biology of the bacterium, the workhorse, E. coli, uh, and its phages. It then seemed that the best thing to do would be to try and expand this to now the fact that there are many other bacteria on Earth and we're getting better and better using molecular techniques to study them. So we went from in labo, if you will, to in mundo, that is going out to the real environment about a decade or so ago. And the real reason, of course, for doing that is we now know from the molecular approaches founded studying E. coli and its phages. Uh, have shown us that over 90%, sometimes 95% of bacteria in any particular environment cannot be cultured in the laboratory. So we will miss them for a very long time. And you were looking in the atmosphere. How long have we known that there were bacteria floating around in the air? That's been known actually for decades. The question has been the scope and the extent of it. Were they just sort of uh, passing through uh, because of uh, whatever being, being moved up from the surface? Or is there actually a very large quantity of bacteria in the atmosphere at any particular time? And the answer looks like it's B. That is, the atmosphere is a real ecosystem, and some bacteria uh, are actually capable of living and metabolizing there, living in clouds, living in high altitudes. So it really is an ecosystem. People tend to forget that the planet has been exclusively microbial for 80% of the time of life on Earth, so since about 3.7 billion years ago. So it really is a microbial world, and they've colonized just about everywhere, from the deepest parts of the ocean all the way up uh, into the high levels of the atmosphere. Presumably, even for hardy bacteria, that's a pretty tough place to live. That's right. I mean, it's, there's not much uh, organic matter to, to eat. It's relatively dry. It's cold. Uh, it's exposed to high levels of ultraviolet radiation. But they're used to it. Uh, I mean, some of them are. And that's exactly what you'd predict. 
Mm. Specifically in this paper, you were trying to you were looking at the influence that these Asian sandstorms have on these microbial communities. First of all, just how regular are these sandstorms? How big are they? Give me a sense of the scale of these things. The sandstorms, the major ones occur as the northern hemisphere warms up beginning in January, February, running till about June. And those are getting, actually, it's assumed to be getting uh, larger and larger due to global warming. So we're getting larger forces into the atmosphere. That's giving you more what are called Coriolis forces uh, occurring, and that's putting more of these desert sand up into the atmosphere. So we know that they're a, a very large phenomenon. It's not just in Asia. It actually occurs as well in Africa, where the Sahara can move over toward the west and reach the Caribbean and Central America. So where were you taking your samples then? We had initially uh, studied uh, Asian deserts. One of the things that we study uh, is not the atmosphere, but the actual uh, deserts themselves. Uh, It's it's a fascinating ecosystem that many people ignored, assuming that there's not much that could survive there. It's hot in the day. It's cold at night. uh, There's very little to eat or drink. You know, it was assumed that they were dry and barren. But in fact, uh, as we found, using high-throughput genomic and metagenomic approaches, whereby we don't just cultivate in the laboratory on petri dishes, we were able to find uh, thousands of species uh, present in just a few grams of sand. So we'd been studying this over the last several years. And then we decided to extrapolate that to ask, could these be transported long distances via sandstorms? So we had studied the big two Asian deserts, uh, the Taklamakan and the Gobi, and that was actually published last year, showing the microbial populations that we could find there. And so we, on our study, decided that the nice way to do that would be to use a multi-city and multi-year approach. So we began in 2009 and had campaigns in the spring of 2009, 2010, and 2011 sampling in two different countries, which would be China and South Korea. As you mentioned, you know, we can't rely on being able to culture all of these exotic bacteria that, were, that are getting swept up from the desert. How, how do you sample their genomes? What one does is, in most cases now, this, these genomic and metagenomic approaches is to extract the total DNA from any particular sample and then either sequence all of it uh, or use uh, what's called PCR amplification to pull out the 16S ribosomal DNA genes, which are conserved in all bacteria in our case, and then sequence those amplicons. And we chose point B. And we also decided that rather than use these sort of collectors to try and get large volumes, we would just collect for 24 hours and let things uh, fall down and collected these on large sterile plastic sheets, which would be the natural way the environment on the ground would be exposed to this sand dropping from the sky. So if in one of your collections in an Asian city you found a, a bacterial particle, how do you know that it actually came from the desert? Well, we don't really know in the sense that we can't prove it, but what we did do was actually a control where from the same site we would sample and collect from a sandstorm, we would ask what local bacteria might stick to sand and be collected by making a sort of fake sandstorm. You can see us throwing these things up in the air and letting it come down over a 24-hour period, off and on, obviously. So we would then process those as if they were collected during a sandstorm. We also did it over a three-year period, two, three-year period, so that we could figure out who might have come 
over from the desert. And the third thing is, is because we had analyzed previously the Gobi and the Taclamacan, we had certain ideas of what bacteria are common uh, and present all over these Asian deserts. Were there differences then between sandstorm and non-sandstorm samples? Desert-like bacteria clearly appeared to increase in populations over several years in several cities and two different countries during a sandstorm event. We also noted a tendency for the samples to be grouped better by year than by particular city. Uh, suggesting that the uh, prevailing winds uh, have a role to play in local atmospheric bacteria and or the transport of bacteria from faraway places in a desert. So the movement of these bacteria really is just down to the will of the wind? I suspect that we will eventually uh, figure out the bacteria, uh, among other things that they've invented, uh, including life, also invented air travel. Uh, and, and, you know, eventually uh, people are going to have to uh, study uh, the bacterial composition of the atmosphere just as well as we do uh, for the chemistry of it. Uh, and eventually this is going to come in as we talk about air quality. We do that with, with quest, you know, with, with uh, CO2 and, and other things. And eventually we're going to have to do that with bacteria. And I think we're going to start to have to do that with fungi and uh, viruses as well. Were any of the bacteria that you found traveling from the desert dangerous to human health? We found one group that contains members of the genus uh, Massilia, and there are members in the genus uh, Massilia which represent a potential uh, for opportunistic pathogens for the human. But there were others in there that we're currently examining more and more who could represent an effect on plants and other members of the ecosystem. They could affect the rhizosphere or the photosphere of plants uh, and other sorts of questions for environmental health. So these might uh, actually have effects on us in what I guess we could call an indirect way, where we're not directly getting sick, but uh, having problems in other things such as uh, food and agriculture. So uh, it can certainly represent a a question of risk uh, to human and environmental health. And the nice thing, I think, is these kinds of things are being done more and more, and people are starting to use these genomic approaches to discern who's really there and to make aerobiology and the movement of microbes to be a real subject for study. Do you think that public awareness of this is going to increase? I mean, in the UK, we have like a pollen count on the weather forecast. Do you think we're going to end up having a kind of bacteria count with the, with the weather? <laughs> I think eventually we probably will in terms of, of risk factor, just like we do for certain chemical pollutants, just as we do for pollen, which is a very good point people will eventually have to take this into account. We know that bacteria can affect uh, precipitation and cloud chemistry and structure. So we're going to get better and better at modeling uh, what goes on in the atmosphere and uh, therefore how this, certainly in the case of deserts, transport these bacteria to other places and and cause certain things to happen. And presumably just looking at bacteria is is quite limited in scope. There's, There's presumably lots of other microbes that could be up in the atmosphere. Yes, there will be viruses, there will be what are called archaebacteria, there will be fungi and fungal spores and other items of that nature. Uh, anything that's small can get transported up there. The nice thing is the technology is for sequencing is getting less and less expensive so that we can consider doing this and eventually doing it as we do for analytical chemistry, which is real-time. 
And that's, I think, where analytical environmental microbiology will be going. That was Michael Dubow from the Institute of Genetics and Microbiology of the Université Paris-Sud. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next month for another edition of the Heredity Podcast. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.